Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 13 through 21. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him who punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But, when, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we praise you for who you are and um, that you give us a reason to gather and sing worship um, and that we can experience you, your presence and um, this fellowship. And I pray that um, you would soften our hearts, that we, we would hear what you have for us today and that we would um, grow in our awe for you and that we would today and this week surrender new areas of our hearts and new areas of our lives that um, the world that doesn't know you uh, would see a little bit more of you through us. We love you and we trust you, Spirit, to do this. In your name, amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. So uh, thank you guys for being here today. Uh, so, uh, so as we dive into our text this morning, uh, I'll start off by saying this. Uh, I probably sent Kayla the wrong verses. So what she just read for you is actually what we're going to be looking at a couple weeks from now, right? So be ready. I remember a couple years ago at my home church, um, my pastor, he got up and uh, he had his whole sermon prepped and, and he got up and he read the word and he read it and, it, you know, it was a Methodist church, so it was really traditional. So he reads, he reads through the text and he stands back and he goes, and blessed be the reading of the wrong text this morning. You know, and so here's one of these beautiful things. You guys are going to have an opportunity now because you've already heard it to be prepared for when, when Daniel's going to uh, preach that message to you guys in a couple weeks. Uh, but we're actually going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning, looking at verses 13 through 21 there. And we're, we're in week two of a series that we started last week uh, that, we've, that we're calling the Everyday Church. And there's some specific reasons for that um, because in reality, last week we talked about some of the issues that uh, the church, and, and, the, and when I say church, I don't mean the building that we gather in. I don't mean the, the, the places that we might even gather throughout the week as a part of our different ministries. When I say the church, I mean the, the people of God, uh, the ecclesia, the called out men and women who are followers of Jesus. And so the issues kind of facing the church in our country today are, are a lot of the same issues that the church was facing in the first century when Peter writes this letter to them. And, and, and they were facing issues like persecution, 
uh, being marginalized by the culture that they were in. And what, what they were really doing is they were struggling to understand why God could be so good and his promises be so great and that there be so much hope in what God had promised to them. And yet in the midst of that hope, everything around them appears to be terrible. That they're losing jobs, that family is Uh, shunning them and refusing to communicate with them. And so they're struggling to understand this tension of living within the hope of the resurrection and the promises of God, while at the same time, right, facing the reality of persecution and marginalization in the culture that they live in. And so Peter's encouragement to them last week as he started off this letter is he starts off by calling them elect exiles. And and what we mean by that when he uses that term is he's trying to show to them, hey, as, as the men and women and the people and the children of God, we are called to be different. That there should be something distinct about the church That when it is faced with being compared to the culture around it, it should look peculiar or odd. That we should look different. And not only should we look different, but that we should actually embrace that. That there should be an embracing of the peculiar nature of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And, And I shared a ton of examples last week of why that is important. But not only was he calling on the church to embrace that oddity or that peculiarity, but he also reminded them that by definition, they were born again to a living hope. And that that living hope rested in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not in their current situation or their current culture. Not in the now, but in the resurrection of Jesus. And we talked about how difficult that is because there's a lot of pressure and things that we face Right, the reality of, of health issues, the reality of work issues, the reality of relationship, friendship, family issues, that all of these things get thrown in our face, but that if our hope rests in those things, we'll eventually be left wanting and sorely disappointed. And so if we understand where Peter is coming from and what he's saying then to these churches, he's calling them to embrace the fact that they're different because it's likely that they're not going to be accepted on this side of eternity and that that is okay. But then we also said that there was a call for us to live as exiles as the church in a foreign land, which means, right, Paul uses this a different term. He says, be ambassadors for Christ. But it's this idea that you and I, as the, the people of God, are given a distinct calling to live differently than the culture around us. And in that distinctiveness, there should be an attractiveness to the glory of God. That people should be able to look at you and I and say, you know, there's something different about them. I remember when I was in college, one of the fascinating things to me when I got surrounded by some true, real believers and followers and disciples of Jesus, 
I, I could not wrap my brain around how they seem to genuinely care about me and not be fake about it. You know, like, I remember growing up and going to church, and I remember a lot of the hypocrisy that was there, and, and the, oh, you know, how are you doing, or whatever else, but they didn't really care. And then when I got around some people that really, really loved Jesus, there was something distinct about them, and in that distinctiveness, the glory of God became so attractive, because I'm like, why, like, why would they do this? Like why, like, why would this person come to visit me and see how I'm doing? Why would this person offer to be praying for my family? Why would this person give up their weekend to go serve the poor and the marginalized in our community? Why would this person buy me dinner as a poor college student? Like what, why, why would someone do the things that they were doing? And the reality was, is that, that the people, the men and women of that church loved Jesus and their hope rested in him. And so they were living as exiles in a foreign land, knowing that someone like me would be embraced by their peculiarity and their difference and say, why? Why would you act different? And in that acting different, does it make much of God? And then lastly, we said that, that as a church, we would resolve to not only embrace our peculiarity and live as exiles in foreign land, but that we would pray for revival, knowing that it is God who initiates and makes all these things happen, right? And so if you're like me, right, whenever, whenever we're reading and studying a book of the Bible together and, and working through it, I always kind of have some questions in the back of my mind as we're working through that book. And what inevitably ends up happening is we read a chunk of scripture and I get some of my heart questions at answered. So, so last week, you know, my heart question might have been like, why, why is the church facing suffering? Or why are Christians losing their place in culture? Or why are these types of things happening? And so Peter, he kind of answers some of those questions. and gives us some distinct answers. And then yet, I always have after that more questions. So wait a minute, if the answer to the questions last week are that the church is uh, supposed to live peculiarly and live as exiles, then the next question that would inevitably come from that would be, well, what does it mean to really do that? You know, what, like, it, it's one thing to, to speak in generalities uh, of, of how, how we might live or how we might do something, but the reality is, is I... I didn't come born knowing the, the, the specific things I was supposed to do to honor God. And so this is what Peter addresses in the text that we're going to look at this morning, that if we are struggling to find our way in this culture and yet remain distinct and live to the glory of God, what should that look like? So starting in verse 13 of chapter 1, look at what Peter says to them. You know, he's going to transition. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's, he's transitioning there. That's what that word, therefore, uh, is placed into the text to do, to say, okay, he's transitioning away from explaining to you and I, hey, we're called to be distinct and different, to now, how do we start responding to that call, right? And he gives three things there that should speak life into the church about who we're supposed to be becoming, 
right? That first one is this. He says, prepare your mind for action. Um, Pastor John MacArthur, he says this. He says that some translations will render that section, gird up the loins of your mind, right? And I, I know like none of us get up in the morning, we're like, I need to gird up my loins, right, as I head out this morning. But what that meant is it was an ancient practice of gathering up one's robes when they were needing to move in a hurry. So if you wore a robe, you need to pull that up a little bit and then tie, tie the rope around your waist so that you weren't tripping over your robe as you were moving at a quick pace. Now, what Peter's doing here is he's metaphorically applying that to our thought process. This, this means that it's supposed to pull in all the loose ends of one's thinking by rejecting the hindrances of the world and instead focusing on the future grace of God. Right? So what Peter is saying here is, hey, look, life is complicated. We have a million different things vying for our attention and our affections. The number one way the church begins to live out this calling distinctively is by slowing down, reflecting inwardly and figuring out where our thoughts and our attentions and our affections are going so that we might orient our minds on the things of God. Now he moves on to say, not only are we supposed to prepare our mind for action, meaning there's going to be action coming from this, but that we also need to be sober-minded, which means be aware of your surroundings. Um, how many of you guys have ever, ever been around kids or babysat young children under like the age of like eight or nine? Okay, a good majority of you. Have you guys ever been in a large crowd or in a public place with kids? Okay, they don't do this, right? Be aware of your surroundings. Last night, right, we went out for uh, Pastor Derek's uh, birthday dinner and we were at Mojo downtown and someone asked me like, hey, Kevin, how, how was that last night? I was like, well, I spent the entire time trying to get my kid not to run into the other people in the restaurant because Gideon, who's seven, thinks that the world is his playground and you get him around two or three other kids and, you know, all of us have like these spheres that we belong in. And right, and so mine's kind of a, about this big. Gideon's extends from the edge of that stage to the other edge of this stage because he's completely unaware of his surroundings, right? And so you've walked into public place and you got kids running into you. It's because they're unaware of what's going on. And what Peter is saying here is like, hey, church, you guys are like, you guys are like kids, completely unaware of your surroundings, except in regards to spiritual warfare, right? The reality is that, guys, some of us, we, we just need to wake up and realize there's, there's more going on in the world around us than just politics and sports and school and work. That there is a war being waged between God and the forces of evil. And in that battle, there is a battle for your affections and your attentions and your heart. And our proclivity, especially in the West, and we talked about this last week, to, to submit to the worldview of naturalism then leads us to this level of unawareness around us that causes us to stumble and miss what God might have for us. 
and to miss living in the power that God has called us to. And so Peter says, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. And the last thing he says is this. He says, set your hope fully on the grace brought in Jesus. He says that we start by realizing that to live as the church is to be inside of hostile environments while not letting those hostile environments deflect our gaze from our hope in Jesus. He's basically saying to the church, don't try to run from persecution. Don't try to run from being marginalized. Don't try to run from looking peculiar. Don't try to fit in with the culture and be liked and accepted. Instead, know that the environment you will be in is hostile and let that not deflect from your gaze in Christ. To put it another way, we are ready to go into a culture that rejects our worldview without bending our beliefs, but also without losing hope. How many of you guys were Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts? Okay. I don't know. I actually don't know anything about the Girl Scouts, so I don't know if this analogy is going to work or not. Right? But, this, but one of the Scout mottos for Boy Scouts was be prepared. I think the Girl Scout motto was sell delicious cookies. Right? But the Boy Scout motto was be prepared. What Peter is saying here is, church, be prepared for persecution and hostility. Be ready. Because it's not a matter of, of if it might happen. It's a matter of when it's going to happen and to what degree that's going to exist. Right? Like, I, I think like as Americans... Right? We tend to bemoan our, our loss of influence in the culture, but in reality, we still have it better than a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world. The worst thing that'll probably happen to you, the worst thing that's ever happened to me as a Christian is I had sand kicked on me at a beach while I was sharing the gospel with somebody. Another time I had pancakes thrown at me at the front door of someone's house. Not, not exactly the stuff that like great movies are made of for people really standing up for their faith. Right? The reality is, is that Peter says, as a distinct elect exile and follower of Christ, this is what we can expect to walk into. And then he moves on to say this. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Right? This is what I love about uh, many of the authors, especially in the New Testament, is they tend to do this thing, right, grammatically, where they, they put together what's called the indicative and the imperative, right? And, and the indicative is they take a command in Scripture, right, and they give it to you, but they always match it with an imperative, which is a statement of fact, of truth, of who you are, right? And, and so what, what we see here and what we tend to do, right, I think as, as, just, as, as humans is we want to know, what do I need to do? What am I supposed to be doing? 
What do I need to be? What, what, what do I need to be doing at any given time to be a good Christian, to be a good husband or wife, to be a good boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, a good student, a good son or daughter, uh, a good employee, a good neighbor? Right? We just want to know, like, what, okay, what do I need to do? Right? And what the, the, the authors of Scripture are, are trying to do, it, they're saying, no, 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 focus on who you're becoming and what God has already declared to be true about you. Right? And what, the, what Peter has said here is that we are a distinct people with a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus, and what we're becoming is Obedient children, that's the, that's the term he uses there. And it's intentional language because anyone who's ever raised a kid knows that the, one of the primary things you are trying to do with a child is help them to become a, a, a mature human being, an adult, to be independent, uh, to be uh, a good citizen, to be loving, to have a, a good set of morals and a good guiding practice. And, and so what parents are doing is they're leading and teaching and disciplining and discipling their, their kids to, to be becoming something, right? This is why I always say, especially when Jackie and I are doing premarital counseling with people, one of the questions we'll ask, and if you're, if you're engaged or plan to be engaged and you want Jackie and I to marry you, one, I won't do it unless you do premarital counseling, and two, I'm going to ask you this question, what's your plan of d- discipline with your kids growing up? And you're like, I'm not going to have kids for like 10 years. You need to be ready. You don't want to be figuring that out on the fly, right? And one of the reasons we say this is, is you, if you are going to be a parent, Part of the discipleship of your kids is that you are, reflect, you are a reflection of God's authority in their life. And by disciplining them and teaching them to respect authority, you are ultimately teaching them the importance of respecting and submitting to God's will and authority over their life. And so as Peter says this, he's like, look, you are becoming obedient children and obedient children to God the Father who was not your father before. Because you are now his. And one of the ways that we're doing that becoming, that we're becoming these obedient children, is that we're not conformed to our passions or our former ignorance. Anyone who's ever been around kids knows that what tends to get them in trouble is they see something really exciting or something they're passionate about and they take it too far. I would submit to you that almost all sin that we tend to struggle with are passions that are good and and given to us by God that we then take too far and start worshiping. And as we grow in Christ and become obedient children, Peter says what is true of you is that you are surrendering those passions and that former ignorance. So let me just speak to a few of you guys who, who may be young Christians in here and you're struggling with habitual sin and you don't really know what to look for and you watch maybe people around you and they see freedom in some of this and, 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 and you are you know, broken or hurt over it and then you come in here and you hear you know, me saying, you know, t- quoting Peter like, hey, we, we need to be obedient children, we need to be putting to, to death. When Peter's talking about not being conformed to former passions or former ignorance though, he is 
saying in that language, hey, look, you have habits to break, and that can be difficult. Right? Everyone loves to hear that testimony of someone who literally did everything they could possibly do wrong and then met Jesus by a street evangelist, and like 24 hours later, uh, they were invited to be at the Pope's house and you know, be the next cardinal or whatever it was because their lives were immediately changed. And like the reality is, is that positionally, anyone who's ever come to know Christ is positionally changed immediately, accepted and loved by God, but behaviors sometimes take time to change. That's part of the process of sanctification and becoming who God has called you to be. And so Peter says there, look, do not be conformed to those former passions or former ignorance. Repent of that. Give that over to the Lord. But instead, and then he uses this term, be holy. How many of you guys have ever heard that before, that the church is supposed to be holy or as a Christian, you're supposed to be holy? Okay, like eight of you. All right. How many of you guys could give me a robust definition of what it means to be holy? Yeah, like one hand goes up, right? Because we don't really use that kind of language. Right? We don't, we don't want to say, like, I don't, like, when I'm disciplining my kids, I'm like, you need to be holy, man. Now I'm like, stop hitting your brother, dude. Listen to mom and dad. Right? We don't use that type of terminology. But if you start studying some of this out, Right? If we're going to be the church, if we're going to be these elect exiles that God has called us to be so that we might be the church and see a change here at the University of Florida or over at Santa Fe or here in Gainesville in our neighborhood or wherever we're going to go after God calls us on to the next season of life, if we're going to be the church, we need to understand this then, that to be living distinctly in our culture means doing what Peter's talking about here, which means we need to be becoming obedient children and we need to be holy because God is holy. And so here's, here's the question then, what is holiness? Right, and there's, there's two words used to this, for one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Right, the Hebrew word is kadosh, and the, and the Greek word is hagias. And they both mean the exact same thing. The literal translation of those words means separate. Okay, and some of you guys know that. You're like, oh, okay, I've done, I've done some word studies in the past. I know that the word holy means separate, right? And so then we start thinking, okay, well, wait a minute. Okay, if, if God is holy and I'm called to be holy, it means I'm separate. And when I think about separate, I mean something that doesn't uh, mix with something else. And so then we start putting on, right, our favorite thing to do as Christians. We get into our Christian bubble, right, and we walk around in that thing because the world might taint us if we walk into it. But I want you to look at some examples of when this word is used throughout Scripture so we get a better understanding of what God is talking about when he calls himself holy, but also what he's talking about when he calls us holy. Right? Uh, turn over to Exodus chapter 15. That's going to be the first place we look at this morning. Look at what he says. This is the song of Moses, so he's singing this about the glory of God and what God has done to them. And look at what he says. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? So he's saying, hey, amongst all the Egyptian gods that I've come in contact with over the course of my life, Yahweh, who is like you? Which, which of them is like you? Is Osiris, is, is Ra? Right? Which, which of them is 
is Anubis like? Which of them could be like you, O God? And he says this, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You see what he's saying there? Right, when he starts talking about the holiness of God, he's not saying, hey, you can stick God right next to the gods of uh, the Egyptians and say, hey, there's some minor differences between them. No, he's saying when you separate and look at God's character and who he is, there is nothing that can compare to the glory of God. Nothing. There's, there's nothing that can make me look at the gods of the Egyptians and be like, man, they're pretty faithful. They're, they're, they kind of sound like the, gods of, the God of the Hebrews. No, Moses is saying there is nothing, there is no one like him. And so when, when God is then saying, hey, be holy like me because I am holy, he's saying, hey, look, there should be no one like the church. The church should be so distinct, they shouldn't be able to look at the Rotary Club and say, hey, the church is a lot like the Rotary Club. They shouldn't be able to look at the Shriners and say, hey, the church is a lot like the Shriners, which, by the way, it'd be really cool to be one of those because in every parade I've ever been to, they get to drive those cool little cars with the red hats. But God is not saying, hey, 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 yeah, be, be distinct, be kind of like them. Now, the church should be so distinct and so different that people are just like, man, what is, like, what is up with them? Like, I've met nice people, but these people are just weird. I've met people that love people well. These people are crazy. I've met people that serve and volunteer and do things. The church, they're nuts. Do they even have lives? Like, what, like what's going on? That this should be the call of his church. Now, on top, top of that, one thing I want us to know there is there's a differentiation between God and us. Right? Look at what he says in Isaiah 55. Right? This is God talking to his people. And look at what he says. Starting in verse 8. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I always love, like as a pastor, you just get asked a lot of theological questions. And people, people sometimes will be like, hey, why, do you, like, why does God do this? I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, well, that's not a good answer. It kind of is. He's God, I'm not. Okay, well, why did God choose to save some? He did. Why, did. why did God choose the cross? He did. Right? He's God. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. And guys, if you can get to a place where you realize that the holiness of God is not just God being a little bit better than you and a little bit smarter than you, but being infinitely better, infinitely smarter, infinitely more powerful than you, you will start seeing questions philosophically about the world around you, and you will find great hope and clarity in the mystery of the unknown of God. Because I don't know about you guys, but if I'm really going to worship God, 
If I really want to worship and know God, I don't want that God to be a little bit smarter than me. I want him to blow me out of the park infinitely. A lot of you guys in this room are smarter than me. I don't want to worship you. I want to worship God, the God who created you, knows you, the one who set before the foundations of the world the plan to save you. That's the God I want to know. And God is basically saying here in Isaiah 55, look guys, I know, I know, Isaiah, I know you're a prophet. I know you're declaring the glory of God to the people of Israel as they prepare for exile. I know that you're declaring what I'm gonna do to rescue my people. I get it. I'm excited that you think you know me, but I just need you to understand something, Isaiah. Look, you and the people of Israel have no idea how big the chasm is between us. Like if we're comparing this to sports, right? God is playing in the majors and you and I are like playing farm league baseball for some podunk town in Oklahoma. And for those of you guys that have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm sorry, I'm a sports guy. That's where my brain goes, right? The chasm is so wide, you can't even begin to fathom it. Then lastly, right, what we need to understand that when God says that he is holy and that we are to be holy, we need to understand how God views sin. Look at Habakkuk 1.13 with me. Right, this is Habakkuk crying out to God, and look at what he says. He says, God, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Right, what he's saying there is this. God, you are so holy Right, that to look on evil, right, you cannot do. It's not as if like God is is tempted and can like look away or do some of the the, the strategies we devise to avoid sin. He's like, no, no, no. God, like it doesn't cross God's mind to struggle with this. When we say that God is holy and that therefore the church is to be holy, we're saying that God's character is distinct and different. And this is why when you, when you come to Aletheia, you hear us talk about sin and repentance and following God because God abhors sin and wants a people who know and recognize their need to follow him, to be in him, and to be growing in obedience to him as children. It is a call to holiness in the midst of a culture that doesn't just sin, but cheers it on around us. Right, like I, and, and, and some of you guys are like, well, I, you know, I'm not like the culture around me. I'm different. You know, I'm not partying. I'm not sleeping around. I'm not, I'm not doing whatever thing you want to concoct in your mind that you use to help puff up your morality a little bit. And, and look, guys, the, I, I am not saying that there aren't Christians and there aren't churches out there and, and pockets of, of people that love Jesus that don't abhor sin, and, and don't talk about it and, and call people to repent and then put it to death. But here's where I would then show you 
a distinctiveness of God's character, that God can be who he is, that he can abhor sin, and yet what differentiates him and his holiness is his holiness drives him to compassion. I think, like, most of, many of the most holy and moral people I've ever met in my life are some of the worst people I've ever been around and some of the most rude and horrible, least loving people I've ever known. And yet, Jesus is the definition of holy and separate. And yet, turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Not only is he holy and separate, but his holiness drives him to compassion, not judgment. And look at what he says, starting in verse 5. And if you're interested in what Paul talks about before that, he's basically just telling the, the church at Philippi, hey, look, you guys need to love people better. You need to start treating people better and esteeming their interests above your own. And this is what he says, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, this mind of treating people with love and respect and compassion and putting their interests above your own, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of of God the Father. Jesus was holy, but he came down in our place to hostile territory, lived holy and distinct, and then saved us. His holiness drove him to love and compassion, not judgment and fear. If you turn back to 1 Peter what Peter is calling the church to, to do there is to be holy in all conduct, to be like Jesus. Right? He says there specifically, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. It's like in the, in the manner in which you behave or and how you carry yourself at all times, you should be honoring Jesus and living like him. That's the call on our lives. Be more like Jesus. Don't be like that, that, that good Christian Sunday school teacher you had or your best friend who's really, really holy or whoever else. No, the goal is to be like Jesus. That our conduct would mimic and mirror Jesus. And if you want some specifics on that, Luke 10 gives you all you need to know, right? Luke 10, 27, look at what Jesus says. And he answered, you shall love, excuse me, this is the answer that the guy gives Jesus, but Jesus confirms it, but this is what he says. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You know who did that perfectly? 
Jesus. So when you say, well, how do I practically right, align my conduct with the life of Jesus? Look to that verse, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, right? Here's, here's what Jesus is saying there, right? He's saying, your adoration for God should be on a different level than anyone should ever have affections for their God or someone else. That if you love somebody, your adoration of Jesus should be so much greater than them. That the heart and soul, right, of honoring God is to adore him. Right, to love him at a deep and profound level. I think like practically, right, the, the way this can look is guys, some of us, we just need to awake, awaken our hearts and allow ourselves to worship God. Like, like I love our church. So, so I'm about to critique us, but, but hear me on this. I see some of you guys get excited about your majors or your job or your significant other or your friendships or the Gator football team. But if we start talking about God or we start singing to God, it's like a funeral procession started. Like, like when I come in here and we're, we're singing songs about Jesus, our living hope, and you guys look like you're doing accounting work, which, by the way, is boring. Accounting majors, I'm sorry, but it's boring. Guys, God is not boring. Philippians 2 says he left the throne room of heaven to put on human flesh, to submit himself to the will of his Father and to die in your place. That's not someone that deserves his hands in your pocket going, let it be, let it be, Jesus. Guys, wake up, <laughs> right? If you want to know why people look at us and they're like, ah, there's no difference between the church and the world, it's because we're declaring to them Jesus isn't better than the Gator football team, right? Jesus isn't better than your major. Jesus isn't better than sex. All that stuff is better. It's more exciting. No, it's not. We're just declaring that it is. And if the people of God get back to the heart and love and adoration of Jesus, the world will see that and know that. Right, worship him. Right, show some emotion. It's okay. David, a man who's called after being after God's own heart, and by the way, screwed up a lot over the course of his life, once danced naked in the streets, celebrating God and his goodness towards them. And David's like, far be it from me to care about anything other than declaring the goodness of God and what he's done for us. Because he adored his God with his heart soul right the other thing that he says there that we're to love the lord our god with all of our strength what he's talking about there is devotion right that our our devotion what we commit our lives to 
when we talk about being committed to Jesus, it should look different than everything else in our lives. How many of you guys can get out of bed to go work out but can't find time to open your Bible? Hear a pin drop right now. Right? We're declaring to the world around us every day, this is our God. And for some of us, we're declaring video games are our God. School is my God. Working out is my God. Spending time with my friends is my God. If we're going to love God with all our strength, our commitment and our devotion to him should look different than anything else in our lives. And then lastly, he says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. This means that your thoughts and your speech reflects who your heart belongs to. This means that you use language that edifies and looks for opportunities to speak of God's grace, not tear down. That we look to build up and be agents of change and encouragement, not divisiveness and hatred. This means that you fill your mind up with things that remind you of the living hope of Jesus, not the terrible hope that is your current circumstances. And you do this continuously as an obedient child who's learning to grow and become the child of God that God created you to be. If the church is going to live the way that Peter describes here, it means we're going to be holy, which means we're going to be conforming to the conduct of Jesus. So how do I do this? How do I, how do I, how do I be holy, right? Okay, so I'm going to be the church. If I'm going to do this. What do I need to do? Well, I need to be holy. Well, what do, what do I need to do? Well, well, Peter just shares a few things there, right? You, you respond to, to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, but you also, right, need to know who you are, right? Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So there's gonna be three things, right, that Peter kind of mentions here that lead to living a life that is holy and distinct in the culture around you. One, you know who you are, right? That you call on God as father, meaning you know you are adopted as a child of God, that you are part of the family. Right? Theologically, we would call this eternal security. Right? Me- meaning, hey, God sent his only son to die for me so that I might be adopted as his son. That is declared and true over me, and there's nothing I can do about it. Right? One, of the, one of the beautiful glimpses I'm trying to give Gideon as he gets older is this idea of adoption and God's love for him. And when we're disciplining Gideon and we're talking through his conduct at times and why it's not acceptable, one of the things Jackie and I frequently do with him when he steps out in disobedience is to say to him, hey, look, who are you? Whose son are you? And we make him answer. He's like, I'm I'm your son. And what does that mean about you? It It means mom and dad love me. It means I'm an Anderson. I say, that's right. And because you're an Anderson, because that's who you are, this is our standard. 
You don't become an Anderson by performing to this standard. You are an Anderson, therefore we're going to live that way. Guys, we don't live this way to become followers of Christ. We live this way because we are his sons and daughters. This is not a, a sermon on legalism. This is a sermon on understanding that if we're going to grow in Christ, we press into knowing who we are, but we also press into pursuing obedience and holiness. That will make us distinct, and that will make Jesus look great. The second thing he says this, right? He says, first to know who you are, but then he says, conduct yourself with fear. Right? Fear, fear in scripture is often equated with the same word as respect. Meaning, meaning this. And I would just say this. Guys, you obey what you fear. You do. Whether, whether you like it or not, you obey what you fear. And often what you fear is disapproval. Amen. Right? Often what you fear is disapproval of others or something or whatever else. So you end up fearing a professor or a teacher, or you end up fearing a parent, or you end up fearing a boss. Instead of fearing what you should really fear. Right? Look at what Proverbs 29 says. Right? If you look at Proverbs 1, he says that, Fear of God is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. But then when you move on later in, in the Proverbs, right, what Solomon is trying to teach his son, he says, he says this. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Guys, I would challenge you to think through this. Do I care more what my friends or roommates or boyfriend or girlfriend or parents say about me or do I care about what, more what God says about me? And if you care more about anything that what someone else says other than God, right, the promises of Scripture is that there has been a snare laid before you, meaning you're going to get trapped and hurt. Right, John Bloom put it this way, God has the power to free us. And he wants us living in the safe freedom of trusting him. But he frees us not by removing our fear of disapproval, but by transferring it to its proper place. And typically, he frees us by helping us face our false fears so that they lose their power over us fear is not the problem fear of man is the problem if our fears are transferred unto God guess what God doesn't fail God doesn't hurt God does not abandon And because of that, it can be a healthy fear that drives you to obedience and holiness. Some of you guys are sitting here right now and you're like, man, I, I, I really struggle with fear of man. Or if you're super into psychology, right, what we would call codependency, right? Book recommendation for you, write this down. 
When People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch. Top five book I've ever read outside of the Bible. Right? Really, really good book on properly understanding what it means, right, to give God his proper place and authority over your lives and to surrender giving other people that place and that authority. And so we see that he says he calls us to know who we are. He calls us to conduct ourselves with fear. And then lastly, he tells us in verses 18 through 21 to hope in God. He says, you've been ransomed from feudal ways, inherited from your fathers by the blood of Jesus, made believers in God through him. Our faith and hope is in God. We need to remember this, right? Isaiah says this in Isaiah 43 when he's talking about future salvation. He says this in verse 11 of Isaiah 43. He says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Jesus will not share his glory. Somebody asked me one time, like, why, why would God punish his own son for our sin? There are a number of different reasons for that. But if God had chosen just some other man to die for your sin in your place, he would be sharing his glory with his creation. Not going to do that. And if you are in Christ, guess who gets the glory for your salvation? Because he did it all. No one can save but Jesus. Peter says, hope not in circumstance. Hope not in others. Hope not even in your own performance to be holy. Hope solely in God's holiness on your behalf in Christ. And then pursue making much of him. And so here's how I'm going to ask us to respond this morning. If the band wants to go ahead and head on back up. As we take communion this morning and as we have a time of reflection, as we do every, every week after the sermon, right? here's what I would ask you to do. I'd ask you to consider these three things that I'm going to ask you. And as you consider these three things, if you need to jot them down because you're someone who forgets things easily, do that. right? But consider these three things. How am I going to respond to the call of holiness and to be the church, to be in exile? How am I going to respond to this? And we're going to do the exact same thing that Peter asks the church to do all the way back in verse 13. So number one, how am I preparing my mind for action, to be the church, to pursue holiness and obedience? How am I preparing my mind for action? And here's what you should be doing if you're like, I, I don't know, Kevin, but like, what, what should I be doing? Right? I would encourage you to reflect on God's goodness towards you. What, what has God been doing in your life? What have you seen God doing in someone else's life? Reflect on that goodness so you might have your mind prepared to step out and continue to grow in obedience to him. Number two, that you would be sober-minded. Ask yourself this question. God, where are my affections? Where are they? What, what am I worshiping? 
What am I fearing apart from you? Maybe it's health. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's school. I don't know. But what am I fearing apart from you? Where are my affections? And then lastly, I would ask you to do this. That in preparing your mind for action, and as you become more sober-minded and just ask God, like, give me the reality of who I really am. What am I doing? Reveal, reveal that to me. That you would set your hope on Jesus. You would say, Jesus, save me. Like, I know the biggest thing that God's been working on my heart in this last week is that I place way too much fear on what other people think of me as a parent. And they look at me and they, I, I want them to say, man, he's a good dad. Like, how lucky are Gideon and Josiah to have him as a dad? And as I, as I wrestle and struggle with that, man, like the, the collateral damage from that is, is catastrophic because it robs me of joy and approval in Christ, but then it starts putting pressure on my kids to perform and behave and be respectful and be disciplined because if they're disrespectful or disobedient, it reflects poorly on me. And then they've dishonored me because my idol is in my role as a father and as a parent and not in who I am in Christ. And as I sat on Thursday just reflecting on this, God met me and he said, Kevin, I've saved you from that. I'm the father. I'm the one who saves. Your kids don't need you to be the perfect dad, they need me. Won't you trust me? Here's what happened. I, I gave it over to him. I said, God, forgive me. Forgive me for running to my own validation and my own approval and the approval of others at a place where only you can give that approval to me. And guess what happened? Just this overflow in my heart built up. And I just began to sing in my office a song to Jesus. I feel terrible for whoever was next door to me. It was so off key. But that's what happens. Because when you start recognizing who you are in Christ, you're freed from trying to be something you're not, and you're free to worship the one who is everything for you, and that's Jesus. And so during this time, we're going to turn the lights down. Would you just do those three things for me? God, prepare my mind. Help me to reflect on your goodness. Search my affections so I might give them over to you. And then, Lord, help me to worship you.